You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name is Christina Delange and I would like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which I am recording today, the Yuggera people. I would also pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that acknowledgement to the lands of where you, our listeners, are tuning in from today as well. Joining me on today's podcast, I have fellow GP and medical educator, Dr. Tim Jones. Tim, welcome to the podcast today. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Tim, you are a GP based in Hobart. You work to the full breadth of general practice, but you do have a particular interest in paediatrics and that's what I'm going to be picking your brain about and you have very kindly given up quite a bit of your time so we're actually going to be recording three separate episodes so for our listeners I'd really encourage you to stick around and have a listen to each of these episodes. The first one today though we're going to be focusing on behavioral challenges and specifically the assessment aspect of that. We're going to come back for another episode later down the track and talk about management but today we're going to be talking about assessment Tim, I want to start off by asking you, what sort of behavioural challenges do you see in your practice, given you are sort of have that specific interest in paediatrics? Yeah, um, a bit of everything at the moment, Christina. It's an interesting situation down here in Tasmania in that not only are we dealing with some of the impacts post-pandemic on our society, but we've also got a situation where our private paediatric books are now closed statewide. And so... There's a significant proportion of the population in need of some support and assistance, but they're all routing through us in primary care. And we don't necessarily have too many other places we can send them for support at the moment. So we're all having a bit of a crash course in how to upskill and best support the families that we work with. And um, we're seeing the full breadth of what the pandemic has sort of unleashed on our society. We're seeing families struggling with reintegrating children into school environments, children with significant school or social fear. We're seeing a lot of kind of teachers struggling to engage children within the learning environments as well and having concerns about how that child's keeping up with mainstream school. And we still deal with all of the standard childhood issues, things like meltdowns or picky eating or kind of challenges around getting to sleep or falling asleep. They're all still going in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And so when a family does present to you I guess, with concerns or maybe questions around their child's behaviour. What's your approach? You know, I don't want to make this into like just some cookie cutter. These are the exact questions you've got to ask every time. But I guess these presentations can be quite overwhelming sometimes and challenging, quite complex. So how would you say that you, yes. you approach that? One of the things I do is try and get a little bit of ahead of it because sometimes we have that age-old challenge of patients who book with us not quite sure how much time things might take. And so one of the things we've done as a clinic is we've set up a special behavioural appointment type where it's clearly advertised that this is for the assessment and non-pharmacological support of children and families, and it offers them the choice of a 30 or a 45-minute appointment. So we've automatically got that ability to know that we can take a bit more of a comprehensive look. We can make sure families don't feel like we're rushing through things because these issues often need space to breathe within the consultation room. But once the family's actually in the room with me, I do have a mnemonic that I try and follow. It was taught to me through the RSCGP and Emerging Minds webinars that have been happening for the last few years on child health. They have a mnemonic called CHILD, which is fantastic. And 
you can basically think of this as the childhood equivalent of, say, what heads can be in an adolescent health consult, in that you're using a structure for taking a bit of a biopsychosocial biopsy of what's going on for a family and for a child. And so the, the C in child, to kick it off, that's all about the child themselves. So asking the child and their family about their temperament, their interests, what they've been like over their time on the planet so far, whether there's been any changes in that or what sort of circumstances they think might have contributed to that. The H is home, so all about the environment or environments in which the child lives. What's been going on, when, who's there, what are the relationships like? The I is interactions, and so this is between the child and any people who play a fundamental or pivotal role in that child's development. So it's things like the sense of connection, how responsive the relationship is. It's how they deal with boundaries or how they deal with kind of conflict, and it's what sort of values come into that. The L of child is links, so it's links in the communities or links in the learning environment. So it's things like who else is involved, and what the relationship with the teacher, the school or the broader community is like. And particularly post-pandemic, what sort of supports a family has as well. There's many people who come through my door where they have been parenting in a bubble. There's been no one else they can call for kind of other family members have been trapped interstate or overseas. And it's always been surprisingly disheartening to find out that so many families have just felt like they've had to make it up as they go along. And then lastly, the D of child is that these consorts are a wonderful opportunity to do some developmental screening. And I love to just do some form of a brief developmental check on that child and just see how they're comparing across the domains of development. Yeah, great. I love that approach. And it's always nice to have something to fall back on when someone, you know, I guess when a family comes in and presents with an issue and you're in your head thinking, oh gosh, I'm not really sure what to do about this, having something to fall back on and just go back, you know, through your mnemonic can be really helpful to get the ball rolling and get those conversations started. And I like that you've, you know, discussed that approach at a practice and, you know, level as well and making sure that you've got adequate time. And even for, you know, because I know, Tim, you actually run a quite a specific, I think, once a month clinic for a lot of these patients. Even if your practice isn't necessarily set up yet or advertisers like that, I guess if they're booked in for a shorter appointment, feeling okay to explain that we'll get a little bit done today, but to really talk this through and to really nut it out, I'm going to need to get you back to keep discussing this and to keep, you know, assessing, I guess. That's been one of my reflections as a practitioner, just that families, when they come and find you, they're often pushed past their limits in terms of their endurance or resilience. And in some ways, trying to do too much initially can actually be counterproductive. I think we've all worked with patients who are really struggling in the throes of depression or anxiety or trauma, that trying to suddenly make everything excellent is not a realistic goal. And so for families who are really stressed out about what's going on with their kid or what's going on for them as a family, I've learned that even within 15 minutes, we can sometimes just focus in on the one issue that really seems to be the straw that's breaking the camel's back, to use the analogy. Make even a little bit of progress on it, and all of a sudden, the whole kind of trajectory of that family's changed, and you find that you're now all kind of moving towards something that's looking more positive. 
Yeah, great. So we've got a bit of an approach then. Are there specific things that you do in your consult room, I guess, to build rapport with the child or children mm-hmm. and families? Because that I think can be another really challenging part of the consult. I know for me, sometimes I can also feel it very challenging to have the child in the room whilst the parent is maybe like unleashing uh, months of stress yes. and, and concerns around behaviours and the child sitting there maybe colouring in in the corner but still, you know, I think being a parent myself now and you can probably relate to this, Tim, I realise how much they're taking in even when they look like they're doing something completely different. You know, so have you got any tips yes. around how to manage that situation and how to build rapport with families? Yes. Again, I think it's one of those areas where we need to get ahead of the problem so often I'm looking at families in the waiting room, particularly if I've been running a bit late, I can be aware that those families might already be stressed out or feeling like their child's already tearing apart the waiting room. It be a wonderful opportunity for our practice nurses or admin staff to reach out almost prophylactically and take the child and show them some of the cool toys and features that are hiding behind the various doors of the practice. Just to kind of make sure that when the family do hit your room, even if they've had to wait for a little while, They're not coming in already kind of elevated or kind of stressed or worried that the child's behaviour is only going to escalate. So that's one thing. I also find it tricky when the the parents come in and and offer an agenda straight up, you know, like we want a mental health care plan. Our child needs to do this. You know, our child has anxiety and we want help with that. It's not that I expect anything different of them, but I feel like automatically that can tip us into that approach where we start reacting to that agenda. And then going, all right, so how are we going to get a mental health care plan done rather than just going, oh, what do I actually need to know about this child and this family? So an approach I love is definitely to get to a child's level early on, show the parents that you're really interested in their child and that you don't mind their behaviour. Everything in my room is pretty bomb-proof, but I'm quick if the parents are getting out the screens to say, actually, I don't mind. Like They can explore, they can find things, nothing's going to break. You know, and if a child's really struggling, I do fall back on the old kind of set of colouring in pencils and paper. I'll ask the child to draw me a picture of their feelings, draw me a picture of their family, draw me a picture of what's happening at school. It's all got to be a bit age dependent, but I just love that then that gives the parents that little chance to take a deep breath and go, all right, doctor doesn't mind my child. That means I'm probably safe to talk about my child without fear of judgment. And automatically, I think you can see them relaxing to the consult a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I really learned from um, some of the occupational therapists who I think do this really well sometimes, but that real, you know, sometimes game approach as well. You mentioned getting them to do some colouring in or some drawing or even having some toys or games and taking some time, even if it's just five minutes at the start, to actually play a game with the child, you know, so it's not all just about, you know, adult talking. Yes pretty boring let's be honest for the kids (laughs) all right you mentioned developmental screening Tim are there any uh like I guess little tips you have in there around developmental screenings I know when I was a GP registrar I found this really overwhelming I couldn't remember off by heart every single thing that they were meant to do at every single age you know what's an easy way that or a tool that we can use when it comes to Mm. sort of developmental screening so In a way, for me, it depends a little bit about how high my index of suspicion is that the child may actually have a significant developmental concern. If the child comes in and the the gross behaviour and how the parents are describing things seems relatively age-appropriate, 
I may just opt to use an old-fashioned but really good visual tool called the Denver Developmental Assessment, which is a lovely set of kind of bar graphs along a continuum from birth to 18, and it's got the four domains of development. And within the bars, it's got that when 90% of children achieve that skill and when the last 10% of children within normal development achieve that skill. And it's a lovely quick one to either have printed out a laminator or just bring up on your monitor and say to parents, just scan across with me, kind of where does your child fall in each of these domains? And it's a very quick way for me too of identifying, have I got a specific developmental concern or have I got a more global developmental concern if a child just isn't quite hitting the bars? So the den was great. If I really want a bit more information, here in Tassie, our infant health books and child health books use the PEDS, the Paediatric Evaluation of Developmental Status, which is the tool developed by the Royal Children's Hospital. It takes a little bit more time. It's often one I'm bringing into the homework sense, particularly if it's been a shorter appointment to start with, but I really want that information to help my clinical reasoning. I've normally got some way of asking the parents to just find the relevant age of their child in that book and just take a quick look developmentally, how are they feeling? And I have learned that 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 thing that we probably all learned in medical school, that do you actually have a developmental concern about your child, is still the most accurate screening question we've got. If the parents are concerned, then I always pay that the time of day to be a bit more diligent. Yeah, absolutely. I guess... Also, whether the, the teachers or childhood educators have concerns, I think can be really helpful too, because they're obviously seeing kids yes. day in, day out and often have a lot of experience, you know, and so can sometimes pick up on those subtleties as well. In terms Definitely. of um, screening for, I guess, medical or psychological causes of some mm. of these presentations, is there anything specific that you would do in that situation or is it more just over time at you know assessment over time yeah I, I do like to give some homework sometimes particularly because if families have the ability to fill out some information or gather some information and email it through to the clinic i can look through it at a time where i'm not feeling rushed or that it's distracting from the flow of the consultation so i've learned that i need a little bit of admin time sometimes to filter information that's coming in i have changed a bit how i screen for various things over time these days, probably my main go-to tool is a freely accessible questionnaire called the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire, which is an internationally validated one. The scoring, there's a few websites you can get logins for and you can just scan the documents, score it for you, or there's some manual hand scoring you can access. But essentially, they've got different developmental ranges from all the way from age 2 through to 17 and will let me just look at a whole bunch of things across different emotional, psychological, and kind of uh, behavioural domains quite quickly. If I really do feel after getting to know a family that there's a specific diagnosis in mind, then I may use a more specific screening tool for that diagnosis. For example, a questionnaire called the SCARED questionnaire can really break down the domains of what's impacting childhood anxiety. And ADHD has become particularly tricky I haven't got a really good screening tool at the moment because they're all quite subjective and I have to kind of learn to take those questionnaires and also apply the objective evidence of what the child's behaviour is like in different environments and what I'm noticing during consultations as well. Yeah, so I guess with the ADHD, some of the things, the ones that I'm familiar with are 
like the Vanderbilt or the Snap 426. Yes. And so you're saying those sorts of things, you can't necessarily take it at face value. There needs to be more of a deep yeah. dive than just a, you know, tick box form. Exactly. It, it's subjective. It's screening. It's all data and data is useful for us, but it's not a replacement for using our clinical judgment. And we've got to just filter it into all that process we're going through to try and understand what's going on for a child and their development. Mm. And you mentioned early on as well, like in the, I think, I for child, was that around, was that interaction? Did I remember that correctly? Yes. Um, you know, I guess thinking about the different environments. So yes. we might be talk, getting a lot of information now from the parent and, you know, or parents yes. or caregivers, I should say. But I guess thinking about more broadly who else is involved in that child's life, whether that's teachers or daycare educators or grandparents and maybe, mm. you know, getting information from them as well. How do you generally go about trying to source that other information? One of my passion projects is to try and move general practice back into that community health space because we're now often detached from child and family centres and often detached from school environments. We can feel a bit like we're in our own little island or bubble and I think it does save you a lot of time in the long run if you do just send a few brief emails of introductions to people like the local child health nurses, to the local school and vice principals and school counsellors, just to kind of build that relationship. Because then rather than having to send a formal letter or request for information, just a brief kind of phone call or an email through can suddenly give you all of this really valuable information about what's being noticed and observed and also what sort of supports are available. The schools are very kind of diverse populations and it's really worth knowing a bit about how you can support a child within the educational environment, given that that's often one of the main concerns families are bringing to us these days as well. Yeah, okay. We're about needing to round this up and we have talked about some practical tips here, but are there any other tips or practicalities that you would think that are, is pertinent for our listeners to hear when it comes to these consultations? Yeah. I think, again, one of those reflections I've had over time is just resisting that urge that you have to be the rapid diagnostician of what's going on for a child or a family. And in particular, I think it's important for me to mention using labels carefully. Because even if we're throwing a label around referring to a symptom, it can sometimes embed within the consciousness of a child or a family in a way where it gets rapidly adopted into the identity of what's going on. So a really good example of that is anxiety, where kind of we can just be talking about anxiety in terms of a constellation of symptoms, but what the family's hearing is, my child has anxiety, and what the, the child may be hearing is, I am an anxious person. And so we do have to be very thoughtful. And one of my learning points over time has been not to necessarily end many initial consultations with a diagnostic opinion or even a management opinion, but more just use it as an opportunity for some reflective listening, for making sure that the key points that everyone was hoping to be communicated have been, and to work out some next steps in terms of assessment and support. And I've found that that seems to work much more smoothly and keeps the discussion focused on the practical steps of what we're actually doing as opposed to rushing into a label. Thanks, Tim. That's a really good, good point to make. And in terms of some of those next steps, we're going to 
start to think about that in another episode. So we will close off today's episode for now. Thank you, Tim, for joining me. And I would really encourage our listeners to tune in for our next episode where we're going to be delving into the management aspects of these consultations. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.